Okay, listen up. Whoever holds the conch gets to speak. That's the rule. Is this like assembly, sir? Yeah. Except anybody who wants to speak gets to. But not before they get the conch. Right. In the ninth season of this podcast, we'll be exploring some great writers and works of literature that have been requested by you, the listeners. So, what's on the menu today? Well, how about we attend Jack's Pig Roast down on the beach? You know, that pig whose head's been cut off and placed on a stake, where it's being waved around to the shouts of, Kill the beast, cut his throat, and spill his blood. What do you think? Are we prepared to go there and leave our civilized roots for this strange, devilish feast? This is the wisdom of, and this is episode four, Lord of the Flies. I can crib for myself. Um, I'm thinking back to, I'm pretty sure it was our Moby Dick episode where I compared, well, I was thinking about the sheer variety of interpretations and analysis you can do with the Melville classic, unlike something like Lord of the Flies and the overwhelming evidence that most questions raised by the novel seem to have concrete, definitive answers. You know, For me, I definitely prefer the former. But as I get older, I do find myself appreciating what Golding achieved here, finding something with depth of meaning and clarity, a great cast of characters ever so human, while still being perfect conceptual representations. Throw in the symbolic power of uh, the conch, the eyeglasses, the beast, and you have, in part, what makes Lord of the Flies so special. Yeah, lots of symbolism in this novel, right? And you're right, it is both nicely and simply crafted. Okay, but before we get into some of that, first, and as usual, a brief summary. So, Lord of the Flies is a novel by the English author William Golding, published in 1954. It's a book about a group of boys whose airplane crashes on an uninhabited island somewhere in the Pacific Ocean. The story is about their attempt to govern themselves without any adults around. Now, that sounds pretty fun and exciting, right? Nothing but beaches and shells and not a grown-up in sight. Well, it doesn't quite turn out that way. No, needless to say, the results are disastrous. Now, some of the major themes explored in the novel include the innate evil in humans the dangers of group mentality, loss of innocence, and the importance of order and civilization for morality. Lord of the Flies is considered a classic and in that group of one of the most influential novels of the last hundred years. It's especially popular reading in schools, too. 
Uh, listification, which I don't think is a real word, has infected the online world, which for more and more people is just the world. Like the finding some website that's giving you the top 14 things nobody knows about that TV show you don't watch, like Extreme British Wrestling Bake Off. And uh, who am I to go against the trend? I've caught the fever. So the top five reasons why authors write. Number five, parents, comma, crappy non-relationship with. Number four, alcohol, and it's dirty next-door neighbor alcoholism. Number three, going through war, bonus points if it was World War I or World War II. Number two, that stuck-up loudmouth Brennan Accounting who won't shut the hell up about the expensive new drone he bought, and you'll never be able to afford it with that stupid things you scratch out, nerd. And number one, maybe, a unique, beautiful idea that you just want to share with the world. But more specifically, why did Golding write this book? What were his influences? People write books to buy drones? Weird. Anyway, so, so yeah, so what influenced Golding here? Well, I think Golding's primary influence in writing The Lord of the Flies, which he even mentions in his story, was a book written by R. M. Ballantyne called The Coral Island, published in 1857. Now, this was a story about three boys who are marooned on an island in the South Seas, with no adults to take care of them. Now, basically they live an orderly life there free from any conflict. They're all tuned to the key of love, as one of the characters is made to say. So, well, it's a highly romanticized story. All the boys stay clean living and productive, all the while keeping up their British middle-class principles. There's just no degeneration on their part, moral or otherwise. I should mention that this is not to say that evil didn't exist there. It did. I mean, there were pirates and cannibals and so on. But the important thing is that evil is never attributed to the boys themselves. And that's because they're perfectly devout Christians. So, really, that's the moral of Ballantine's story. That to be a Christian is to be good. And that Christianity helps to drive off the external forces of evil in the world. Now, Needless to say that all of this clearly seemed unrealistic to Golding. In fact, in Lord of the Flies, he depicts the opposite picture. Christianity, or for that matter, any social practice or norm, has no ultimate effect on character and behavior if people are left alone to their own devices. In those situations, there is no salvation, except in yourself. Okay, so that story is the most important influence on Golding. But I think there's another one that we have to say something about. And it's this. It's Milton's Paradise Lost. I mean, I think you find several parallels between them. I mean, like Milton's Eden, Golding seems to suggest, at least in appearance, that his island is, or was, also an Edenic paradise. What else? Well, I think it's pretty safe to say that the boys in The Lord of the Flies can be seen to represent the earliest man and his fall in Eden. That's to say, instead of being custodians of this island, which they started out being, they slowly begin to destroy and corrupt it to the point where it's no longer livable. 
And not only this, but there's also this allusion to fallen angels and the devil. I mean, think about Jack. He's a choir boy who turns bad, right? It seems to me that the fact that he's made out to be a choir boy and someone who wears a cross, and not just an ordinary schoolboy, is revealing in this way. Anyway, by, by using children to represent the fallen angels of paradise, I think Golding is reminding us that the defects of human nature are right there from the beginning. That, to quote Camus, the worm is right there in man's heart. I, I know you think structure is important, at least when it comes to this podcast. We tried a couple of times to do a structuralist version of this podcast, and it was a mess, forever consigned to the digital dustbin. So if structure is good for something as monumental as a podcast, surely it must play some sort of role in less important things like uh, human society. What happens when all that structure that you thought was just always going to be there disappears in a flash? Yeah, so what happens? Well, it's not good. And it's a good question because it's something this story obviously explores. I mean, basically, I would say that Lord of the Flies is most essentially about the importance of order and structure within a community, and also the necessity of order for morality. But to make this clear, Let's start at the beginning. So, notice that at the start of their being adrift on this island, everything seems to be going well with the boys. They create their own social system. Ralph is chosen to be the leader, democratically. They use a conch shell to speak, which is the symbol of authority at that moment. And they they keep a fire going in the hopes of being detected. But then, of course, the choir boy, Jack, dissents and amasses his own group of hunters. They start to hunt pigs for meat. They start enjoying these hunts and the violence associated with it. Liberated from their social selves, they kill without remorse whatever gets in their way. Then Jack overthrows Ralph as the leader, and with him, all humane rules. And of course, the death or murder of both Piggy and Simon put the ultimate stamp on such transgression. I mean, as it's pretty clear, these two characters are highly symbolic, right? That is, they represent the the philosophical or rational, in the case of Piggy, and the religious or mystical, in the case of Simon. Well, so why are their deaths significant exactly? Well, because in their own way, they both represent transparency, order, and structure. And so, they're the two great barriers blocking the descent to hell or chaos. With them out of the picture, there are no more limitations, no more reasonable, persuasive dialogue or speech. Actually, it's it's interesting, when Piggy is killed, he's actually holding the conch. And in this moment, Golding makes sure to emphasize the fact that as Piggy is struck by the rock, the shell breaks into a thousand white pieces and ceases to exist. Again, order has been smashed and given way to complete, unbridled license. But, of course, like I mentioned at the outset, 
I think that Golden's larger point is that there is the potential for crude self-interest and evil in the human heart, and that the evidence for this is what happens when you take people out of their political or social orders. What happens is that people compete with one another. They resort to their most primal self-serving impulses and so transgress boundaries. Again, in contrast to Ballantyne, human nature is not so obviously essentially good. No, human nature has a strong tendency to selfishness, which, in certain circumstances, like being stuck on an island with no rule or authority, is all too willing to harm others unjustly. Actually, it's interesting. The philosopher Thomas Hobbes understood something like this. I mean, in his great work, The Leviathan, he imagines a a situation way back in our prehistory where there was no civilization, which is to say basically no government and no central authority to enforce its power on others. Now, famously, he called this situation the state of nature. Now, the thing about this place for him was that it was the worst place that you could ever be in. That is, this state of nature amounted to nothing but a war of all against all, in which the life of human beings would be, well, as he says, nasty, brutish, and short. Now, why would this be the case? Well, because for Hobbes, we all seek to maximize self-interest, and so we will ruthlessly compete with others for whatever goods are available. And of course, these are scarce. So, you begin to see how individuals here are going to be badly off, right? In such a a dire situation, everyone is competing to gain as much as they can, which is to say, at the expense of others. Such an all-out competition is bound to be difficult for everybody. Without cooperation and trust, you just have, well, chaos and disorder. Now, Hobbes believed that the solution to this lay in what he called the the social contract, which was basically a kind of compromise on our part to enter into, um, well, a contract or a set of rules whereby we agree that we won't harm each other and so on. And we make sure this happens by agreeing to establish an agency, basically the state or the government, with the power to enforce punishment on transgressors if need be. Now, this is what fell apart with the boys in The Lord of the Flies. When they strayed from Ralph, their central leader or authority figure, their situation spiraled downhill into a battleground of competing factions and individuals, each vying for as much power as possible. And, well, basically, a war of all against all was the consequence. Anyway, so... I just wanted to mention one last thing in closing, and it's not unrelated to what I've been saying already. What I wanted to mention is that it's interesting how it is most of the boys take the opposite of authority to be freedom, which is not surprising. I mean, I think many of us do, right? That's to say, the boys take freedom to lie in the stepping away from or the violation of the established rules and order. Now, It's true in one sense that they do liberate themselves from this. But the problem is that what they do is they end up freeing themselves into, well, 
savagery. And this is a bit of a paradox, right? What I mean by paradox is that, well, that they free themselves into an undisciplined state, that they liberate themselves into a state of bondage to their chaotic and evil impulses. But the question is, how can you really be said to be genuinely free in this way? I don't know. I I don't think you can. As Plato knew so well, you're most free, it seems, precisely when you're disciplined and ordered and doing what's ultimately in your best interests. That's when you're doing what you really want and not a slave to your passions and impulses. At the end of the day, freedom is an ally of order, mutual benefit, and happiness. It's not individual license. When the individual good takes precedence over the the communal one, then reason and cooperation falls apart and chaos ensues. Again, how can you be free in a state of chaos? Why is it when men play, they always play at killing each other? That's the line from the talented Mr. Ripley, uh, the movie. I'm not sure if it was in the Patricia Highsmith book, but Gwyneth Paltrow's character, I think her name was Marge, she's looking at the men in the water. They're late 20s, early 30s types, and they're playing at drowning each other. If it's true what she said of men... This, of course, could certainly be said of boys. The violence in Lord of the Flies starts as a kind of a game, but it escalates into, amongst other things, murder by boulder. So how do we get from this violent form of play to this true form of violence? Yeah, all that was nicely said. And I like the reference to talented Mr. Ripley. Okay, so clearly one of the central themes of the novel is degeneration. Now, one specific aspect of this, which is what you were saying, is how the boys' initial play and fun games transitions into a more and more horrible reality. I mean, at first they're just amusing themselves and playing childish games, right? You know, like um, reenacting Treasure Island and things like that. But very gradually, these games get tinged with, well, sadism and violence. Um, Take, for example, they're playing at pig hunting. At first, they're just pretending with each other. So one of the kids, Robert, is pretending he's a pig while the others are playfully jabbing at him. But of course, this escalates into more and more. And the next thing you know, Jack has actually killed a sow. And then, of course, poor Simon is killed in a very similar fashion. Notice that here we have each episode being more savage than the one that preceded it. You know, for some reason, this reminds me a bit of something St. Augustine mentions in his book, The Confessions. There he talks about, as a kid, stealing a pear from a neighboring vineyard. And he didn't even eat it. He went on to give it to some pigs. Now, I have to admit, this passage always confused me a bit. I mean, why was this confession taken so seriously by Augustine? Why was it so sinful to snatch a pear, especially when you don't even eat it yourself? Well, it eventually came to me. That is, maybe Augustine's thinking was something like this. 
that it's not the one pair in itself that makes the act so bad, but it's that if you let yourself take one, then it becomes a little easier to take another one. And that if you go on to take another one, then it's even easier to take a third one. And so on. And then, at the end of the day, you discover that you didn't just do one mischievous but relatively innocent thing, but that, well, you've become a thief. I don't know, it's a, it's a little bit like pulling at that tiny loose string on your sweater. In the sense that probably the best thing to do is just to never start pulling in the first place. If, at the end of the day, you still want to have something like a recognizable sweater remaining. Okay, so I guess the reason I'm saying this is because as it relates to the boys in The Lord of the Flies, it's easy to see how certain acts, playful though they might be, can so easily get tinged with a cruelty or malice they never seem to have had initially. Or, in other words, that certain acts are just such that they, well, that they foreshadow their more sinister transformation likely to come. Maybe this is one reason, among many of course, why having parents around is so important. Their authority and presence keeps us from doing the sorts of things and getting into the sorts of habits that are best avoided early and altogether. Which, interestingly, is not too far from Aristotle's view on moral education. This stress, that is, on developing good habits very early on. Anyway, at the end of the day, the boys on this island paid the price for having no one around to counsel against, well, taking that first pair. Okay, you know, I think there's a related topic here, and that is the role or the impact of eating meat in this story. That is, I wonder if it's possible to read Golding as suggesting to us that there's some sort of connection between eating meat and the potential for savagery. I mean, it's Jack who's not satisfied with the abundance of fruit and nuts on the island and instead wants meat. And is it merely a coincidence that it's Jack who later turns into the cruelest and least sensitive of them all? I mean, it's interesting how when Jack first tries to kill the piglet, he hesitates and makes some excuse to the other boys. But really, it's because deep down, he and the other boys know the real truth of this situation. That to take that first step into cutting into living flesh is also to take the first step into a hitherto unknown world of violence and eventually sadism. And wouldn't you know it, after that first kill, it doesn't take long to see the transformation. Soon, Jack is described crawling through the undergrowth on all fours like a dog, ready to pounce on and tear apart whatever moves. The blood that was not too long ago unbearable to spill has become a delight to see, and the lifeless body lying in its pool, now nothing but the expectation of roast bellowed on the spit.
to the Wisdom of Podcast. If you want to know more about this topic or the podcast in general, visit wisdomofpod.com. And as usual, we love to read your questions and comments. Reach us at info at wisdomofpod.com or on Twitter at wisdom underscore pod. Our next episode. Margaret Atwood. Margaret Atwood. Margaret Atwood. Atwood. Margaret Atwood. 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 Margaret Atwood. <laughs> Margaret Atwood. Margaret Atwood. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Margaret Atwood. Margaret Atwood. Margaret Atwood.